Welcome to the Green Edge podcast with Michael Cross and me, Fraser Harper. This is our update for the week ending 15th of September 2023. This week, as ever, we've been thinking hard about matters of sustainability and scaling up for net zero. But we haven't been thinking about that quite as much as we've been thinking about the Rugby Union World Cup, which kicked off last weekend with a victory for the hosts, France over the All Blacks. Now, many of you by now will know my colleague on the Green Edge, Dr. Michael Cross, as a fount of knowledge on the green economy. But what you may not know is that he's also, perhaps even more so, an oracle of rugby, albeit heavily tinted with the French grey, magenta, chocolate and light blue of Harlequins. So, Michael, let's have your predictions for the World Cup. If I had to back one team, it would have to be South Africa. After seeing them play the All Blacks at Twickenham, their organisation and just determination and energy and commitment and precision and the way they forced repeated mistakes against a very competent team was really impressive. I would like, though, to see a Northern Hemisphere team win it. And if I had to choose two of those, it would either have to be France or Ireland. Ireland are favourites right now, aren't they? The highest in the world rankings. I think on rugby played, and okay, this is unfair, the French have beaten the All Blacks and played jolly well. And they've, they're sending out a completely different team bar one player for the next match, just as South Africans are. So they're going to ring the changes to make sure their full squad is totally ready for the quarterfinals. Well, we'll certainly see in the pool matches a couple of games which are probably good indications. Springboks versus Ireland, that's next weekend. And England uh, probably don't have much of a chance, but England versus Japan this weekend. Could be very entertaining that. Japan, if you remember, did have a nice upset back in 2015. They beat the All Blacks down in Brighton and that was quite amazing. And I think Japan should have got through to the quarterfinals that year. I think they were cheated because they had a short turnaround time. I hope the smaller nations get well treated, both by turnaround time and by refereeing decisions. I think the refereeing consistency can be quite a big determinant on how these games go. England played their game, I thought, brilliantly well, tactically. I think George Ford was a genius in that game. Mm. Well, in this week's post, we couldn't resist putting in a pick of the South African scrum half Francois de Klerk in the rather garish away kit that the Springboks were, we suspect, persuaded to wear against Scotland. And I have to say, I've been a big fan of Faf ever since he went head-to-head literally with Jake Ball in the semi-final against Wales in 2019. There's nearly a full foot difference in height between Jake and Faf, but Faf was well up for the discussion that ensued. And I think they both play their rugby in Japan now, uh, so no doubt they'll be getting the chance to rekindle their friendship there. Anyway, on to the post, which is the third in what is now becoming a series for us, Michael, of posts on skills frameworks. Over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen many professional bodies and industrial sectors developing skills and competence frameworks. Some focus only on technical skills, while others add the wider capabilities like leadership that often differentiate between the average and high performers. And for us, there's a very strong argument that when it comes to sustainability, everyone needs to be a high performer. Now, some sectors have built and maintained comprehensive frameworks, like the digital sector with the SOFIA framework, which started in 1989, 
has been updated every two to three years and is now coming up to its ninth edition. And our interest in Sophia is that it cross-cuts other sectors, which of course is also what Skills for Sustainability should do. It also combines professional skills with responsibility levels and personal capabilities. So we have asked the question in the past about how it might serve as a template for what we might call a universal sustainability skills framework. But Michael, we can't just take Sophia and green it. So we probably need to look at a few others along the way, wouldn't we? We would, and we could combine them. There's certainly work done by Brookings they developed a green skills framework and had three primary categories that brought in these more general capabilities of sustainability, which they saw as being critical for overall transformation. Engineers Without Borders have also developed their own set of thinking about this, as has the Design Council. And CDFOP, of course, pooling on the expertise across Europe, have both developed their own taxonomy, five categories of green jobs, and the whole nature of perma-skilling. And those are skills not just that are going to be permanent for the future, but actually part of a perma-culture and a whole mind shift. And most of the chartered bodies around the environmental groupings have also produced their own skills frameworks to some shape or form, from the overarching one like Society for the Environment, and also bodies like IEMA have got their own skills maps. But we need to bring them together. I think people need to have that common language and common structure to allow us to actually make significant progress. Otherwise, we end up with fragmentation, too much competition at a time when we haven't got the time to have those discussions, I don't think. Indeed, we all need to be singing from the same hymn sheet. So what we tend to see is that every framework brings its own perspective and starting point and indeed its own limitations. But most of them do contain common themes and principles, even though they may come from these different start points, don't they? They do. But that's not surprising. If you think of the nature of work, work only has five, possibly seven natural levels of work based on either decision-making, responsibility levels, and the like. And then in most of those would break down into three to five levels of performance capability. And once you've got that basic structure, you can populate it with all the competencies you like. And if you think back in the history of this country, when we had vocational qualifications uh, really being energised and we had a major framework push on them, we had the beginnings of a really nice structure and that operated with four levels possibly not enough. But they all have those common themes. It's the language we need to get right as well. But the beauty of technologies allows us to read language and look at comparisons and allow you to share and extract data from multiple sources. And one thing that's very important, particularly with sectors like digital and sustainability, if we can refer to sustainability as a sector, which are rapidly evolving is that there must be a support mechanism there to keep it current. Keeping things current is really important. And I think one of the great things with the the evolution of some of the digital technologies allows us to scour, extract and translate messages from other sources and then translate them into competent statements. And discussions we've had this week with a number of people have really emboldened our thinking on that to actually think that through as an approach to ensure that we keep standards up to date and relevant and also reduce the time it takes. The time it takes to cook a qualification is far too long. The time it takes to acquire a qualification, you could argue, is too long. I think with the better use of technology and the best use of the best training thinking, 
we can actually accelerate the move to net zero. And here's something else we hear quite a lot. Now, as we say in the post, a universal sustainability skills framework would need to fulfill all the purposes of any such framework for talent management, workforce planning, learning and development, standardization, compliance, and so on. But one other big use is quite simply to support smaller businesses in putting proper processes in place, isn't it? It is. And I think that's why we need to have a fairly democratic process to allow this to take place. I'd like to think some of the structures that have gone into place through the LSIP process just in England could be used to build on that with the sort of coalitions of stakeholders, colleges as employers coming together. But if they could be given a framework to start with, they can populate it locally with their local needs. And also, if they've got a centrally driven framework, they can draw upon the standards that IFATE have or the National Occupational Standards and other data sources to allow them to actually think through how to structure the programs they need locally, almost by major project. And major projects, I'm thinking here, there's a retrofit major project in every town and in every village. There's a major issue around infrastructure in relation to our move to electrical vehicles and the like, or sharing of electrical vehicles. And we can go through that long list. But there are also the national projects that are going to bring major transformational change about how we move energy around this country. And as people have been saying, net zero needs networks. I think it's such a powerful statement. We need to think how we move energy around. And one interesting paper we came across this week, which we'll be listing in our reports roundup, actually looked at the challenge of networks from a different perspective. What pressure can we take off networks if we have more microgeneration going on? So if more of us had solar panels on our roofs, we could reduce our demand on the total grid and therefore reduce the need to invest in some of that grid and take some of the strain off it. We'll see if that comes along into the thinking. It's when you get down to the detailed place-based planning around net zero, you start finding slightly different solutions to take pressures off the whole system running across a whole country. Well, a reminder that you can find this week's post with the rather fetching photograph of Fafta Clerk in his hyperjade outfit on greenedge.substack.com. And you can also find this podcast on all the major streaming platforms, including Apple, Google and Amazon. Now, Michael, we're midway through September and out of the summer lull, although I think it's fair to say you didn't really see a lull in reports coming out over the summer. But what have you seen so far this month? I'll pick out just one. And this one is trying to represent a bit of a theme. It comes from Scotland, where they're looking at the whole nature of social justice around net zero and the need to be able to communicate and engage with people and therefore carry people with us because we all need to make lots of decisions around that zero. And we're seeing more reports around behaviour change, culture change, and the involvement of citizens in the process. And I'm looking forward to delving into that report and summarising aspects of it from our perspective in our reports roundup. Look forward to seeing that at the end of the month. Thank you, Michael. A pleasure and enjoy this weekend's rugby. Let's get back to it. Thank you for listening to this Green Edge podcast. This podcast series accompanies the Green Edge newsletter, to which you can subscribe at greenedge.substack.com. The Green Edge is produced by Blue Mirror Insights.